As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Good afternoon and welcome to Healthy Lifestyle. I'm Lorianne Kazdia. Our goal at Healthy Lifestyle is to inspire, educate, and empower others to a fulfilling, a healthy, emotional, spiritual, and physical life so that you can feel empowered to live the life you have always wanted and dreamed. You know, if you've been listening, that I truly believe we are here to serve each other. And I am driven by the desire to leave the world a better place than the one we inherited and relish the opportunity to make a difference one person at a time. And we're going to definitely do that today. I'm excited to have the director of screening, brief intervention and referral to treatment, which is Espert uh, for Northwell Health, Dr. Sandeep Kapoor. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm excited because you're a member of the Northwell Health Opiate Management Steering Committee, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Which is, uh, you're charged to, uh, Collate a community of solutions to address the prevention of opiate of the opiate uh, epidemic, correct? Yeah, so you know it's really a coalition of multiple team members throughout our large organization to stand up better solutions to uh, address the opiate epidemic and the substance use crisis in general. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a it's a really interesting topic on so many levels, and I know that a lot of people out there have been affected by this this terrible. Um, situation. It is an epidemic. I know my, my own personal family have, has been, and, uh, it's really difficult to, to express what it's like going through it if you haven't been through it. But once you're through it, you just know what the situation is. So let's talk about this addiction. It's, um, it's, it's pretty fierce. What's, what's caused this? It seems to have come up very rapidly. Did, do you see that? So first, I mean, thanks for sharing that. And I mean, I, I do agree that this is a, uh, touched many people. Um, many more than we can ever imagine uh, within our homes, our communities, and within our patient population. Um, it's not something that just come up, uh, which is unfortunate because it's been around for hundreds and year, hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, especially when it comes down to opioids. However, uh, currently, it's something that spans every zip code, every social economic uh, status, uh, every race, every ethnicity, and it's at a level of where we truly need to put together some resources. Um, and better heightened awareness around it. Yeah, I just, um, you know, again, going through it, I, I think the frustrating thing was to um, not have any resources and to know that Northwell is really focusing on, and you specifically are really focusing on providing different tools. Um, one of the things I love is is uh, the program that you're the director of. It's Esper, right? That's correct. And, um, and tell us more about that one. 
Sure. So if you can imagine um, the same- I can imagine. (laughs) So the same way that we take blood pressure or someone's blood sugar uh, or other vital signs to understand uh, how their overall health is, uh, Espert is a program that's allowed us to build in an opportunity for our patients to speak to us about substance use, be it alcohol, drugs, or tobacco. So uh, the screening part of uh, Espert is really using evidence-based questions uh, universally with all of our patients every time they present, regardless of what their uh, illnesses or their complaint is or why they're coming in, we want to take a standard vital sign to understand if substance uses are playing a role in their life. Okay. So now dumb that down. Okay. And so you ask very specific questions or, or things to articulate or define whether or not, um, in a proactive way, whether or not someone has proclivity to to having substance abuse or sure so not so yeah so there are uh, a set of questions that we ask and the questions are based on um validated screening tools so if you can imagine which i'm sure you're going to say you can uh three questions on alcohol (laughs) use and one question on drug use and the the beauty of uh, having these standardized questions in place is it allows our clinical teams to show a non-judgmental, non-confrontational affect, you know, really humanize this process so that patients and our community members can feel comfortable talking to us. Um, You know, one of the things that addiction has gone hand in hand with for so many years is um, the fear of talking about it. Um, And by us proactively asking as part of clinical care, hopefully that starts to destigmatize the issue. Yeah, well, we were talking earlier about this and uh, and that's all I'm going to say. No, I'm <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> um, and uh, we were talking about the fact that uh, you know, our as an outside of the medical community, my perception is not that of getting the warm and fuzzies, and it's it's really judgmental on topics like these where other people are very judgmental of people who have these type of addictions or situations or diseases. It just depends on what label you want to put to it. Um, but society's really harsh, really, really harsh about that. And it's really exciting for me to hear and hopeful for me to hear that we're starting in the direction where you're, you're healing not only the medical issue that you're dealing with, but also the person that's behind it and, and all of the things that come with it. I mean, we all have our levels of insecurity. We all have our levels of feeling like, yikes, I'm, I'm less than other people. And, and this may make people feel that way based on how society reacts to us, right? You just said probably the core message right there, which is hope, right? You said that it, it, it gives you a picture of, hope, of hopefulness. Well, I mean, I think as somebody who's been through this, uh, having family members that have been through this, the one thing that we crave is hope. Yes. Uh, and that's the thing that helps us uh, to think that there is a future. Um, if you could, if you could just see the amount of education, uh, the amount of skill building, and truly the amount of comfort that we're trying to uh, increase amongst our clinical teams as well as our patients, it starts inadvertently delivering that message of hope. Yeah. Um, if we all start speaking the same normalized language around this, uh, we start to soften our language uh, because a lot of the conversations that happen in any kind of professional setting usually stem from what we heard at home. Right. Uh, what we're talking about around our coffee tables, our dining room tables, uh, you know, if we're using the words as addict or junkie and all these derogatory terms that may illustrate a certain population, uh, we're further stigmatizing this issue. So to think about this, one, as a medical issue, and two, feeling empowered that because it's a medical issue, we can actually bring science to the equation as well as compassion. 
Yeah, because um, by adding the stigmatism to it, we push it underground, which makes it worse, right? Mm-hmm. It makes it worse. So, so as part of um, the proactive element of the expert, um, don't you provide other tools to the family? And that was something sorely lacking. I mean, this happened in my family many years ago when it wasn't um, something that was even a dialogue. And uh, there were no zero, 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 zero tools. I was actually being sent to um, uh, the organization that usually is supporting people who have alcoholics in their family. And that was not the support that I needed. And you need more than that. And it doesn't just affect the, the, the partner. It affects the children. It affects the relatives. It affects the neighbors. It affects the business. It affects everybody. So without that community... Um, there, there was minimal hope and, you know, you had to keep relighting your own hope fire because, you know, you kept hitting, slamming into a wall with this program though, you don't slam into the wall. You actually have support. You actually have people there who can answer the questions and help you through it Well, and, and normalize and, it, so to speak. Exactly. And that's the beauty of this. If, if you build in a process that we can accept as part of our workflows, then that messaging of hope starts right at the moment. So it's by the way we ask these questions. Right. It's how we receive the responses to these questions. And then also it's it's all about communication. It's about sitting there, making eye contact, you know, forgetting the chaotic surroundings that we may work in and actually just having a, a thoughtful conversation. Yeah. Uh, using compassion, you know, building partnership, building trust. Uh, so truly the messaging of hope starts with the way that we we talk about it. Right. Um, you know, knee-jerk reactions could be uh, the cause of someone leaving an office or an emergency department feeling very hopeless. Uh, when I say knee-jerk reactions, it's telling somebody they have to stop drinking, telling someone they have to stop using drugs or shaming them yes. as opposed to truly listening to what is going on in that person's life. You know, what brought them there, what motivators they have to potentially make a change. And then in real time, trying to navigate that process with them in partnership. Yes. So the onus is not left to them. And now some folks will need some special resources some uh, specialty treatment. And yeah, the last thing we want to do is hand a list of 40 different things to somebody that's in crisis or their families and tell them to figure it out. So our teams in real time start navigating that based on a patient's willingness and readiness, which we gauge. uh, We start navigating to see if there is a a care available to them that fits their job life, their home life, you know, their own motivation, location, whatever it may be, um, and try to connect them to care. I mean, and and it's a big act of courage for someone to take the step to go get help. Um, In our society, in America, it's a very big act of courage to ask for help and then to go get it and not worry about it. I mean, you've heard me here on the radio say before, it's none of my business what anybody else thinks. And that's a really good philosophy, but it it's, it's, takes time to get used to that and actually, you know, absorb it into yourselves where you actually believe that that's the case. And someone going through a crisis like this, you're already at your low and you've now taken a courageous step to go get help, maybe gone to an emergency room maybe by themselves, maybe with help of family members or friends to be received this way and, and receive tools that hope that that opportunity is, is great. And, the, and I think that's a, that's a, I heavily applaud Northwell and yourself for having this program in effect and allowing people to have these kind of tools available. You are listening to Healthy Lifestyle. I'm Lorianne Kazdia, and we are speaking to Dr. Kapoor about, uh, intervention and treatment for opiate addiction. 
Um, so, and you, you really focus on that, right? That addiction or all? So really it's, it's, it's all substance use. So alcohol, drugs, and tobacco, primarily alcohol and drugs. Um, but it's an important conversation. It's an important conversation to have and in a trusted environment, uh, that our clinical settings represent, uh, what better place to accept somebody, uh, their will to make a change and actually foster a partnership with them. What do you do when you, do you, uh, do you find that you have patients who come in and then they're just totally resistant? They're like, nope, nope, not, not doing it. I don't want to do that. I don't want to stop. I like it. Do you have patients like that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's for anything, right? So if someone is dealing with uh, obesity, someone's dealing with hypertension, you know, someone's dealing with substance use, uh, you know, the one thing we can't forget, we have to respect people's autonomy. And that means respect their decision-making process. Yes. Uh, the minute we start judging the decision-making process, start directing, um, we're, these are not facilitators for change. So the more that we can accept people for where they are, share you know, evidence, share information, share feedback, statistics, whatever it may be, but with their permission to foster that trusting conversation, um, that's really where we see success. So yes, absolutely. People are um, are resistant. People are not ready. I mean, resistance is a harsh word. People may not be contemplating making a change when they first appear, but if we can plant the seed and that seed of partnership and trust, maybe the next time we have the opportunity to meet them, they'll take advantage of the fact that we're willing to listen and support. Yeah, I, I hear you. The, the, with the word resistance, um, I, I don't. It may seem harsh, but I think it's a it's a fair word. Um, I know when I'm mentoring business and um, marketing uh, clients of mine, uh, I kind of and I, I liken it to a uh, bowling alley. I'm the bumpers, you know, and I just keep them. They have a, a quite of birth to go back and forth between the two sides, but I just kind of shuffle them in um, when they're going off track, just to keep them on track and. But it is entirely their choice to make whether or not they want to stay in that particular track. The same thing with the patients you're dealing with. You are are you saying that that's kind of what you guys do? You kind of buffer them in, provide them with the tools, stay there as support, um, so they can bounce a little bit in either way. But you kind of try to keep them on course, kind of keep them on their train track. Yeah. So I, I would say you know bumpers are there to facilitate. Um, they're not there to drive. Um, and to your point, absolutely. So using the spirit of motivational interviewing, which is a skill set that people can learn, um, using empathy, which is definitely a skill people can learn. Uh, that's how we foster, um, you know, the environment for change as well as the environment for partnership. Um, you know, if we were to turn around and scold, uh, nag, uh, you know, direct folks, that's actually what brews resistance as opposed to accepting people where they're at. And some folks may be ready to make a change that moment. Some folks, it may take a couple of times to decide if they want to make a change. Some folks will never want to make a change. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And part of our protocol is that we universally try with everybody. We give everybody the opportunity to, one, understand that substance use is a medical issue. Substance use, not abuse, not addiction, but substance use is a medical issue that we should take you know, uh, account for. And then try to understand if there's any consequences, health-related or even psychosocial, that we can talk out and see if there's motivation to, you know, take a turn or make a change. So, so you you provide them with information so that they can make a decision, absolutely. As opposed to tell them you need to do this, you need to lose weight, you need to stop drinking, you need to stop taking that drug. These are the side effects that could happen if you continue this behavior. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think what you just said will resonate with everybody, right? Because we've all been kids being yelled at to clean our room. 
We've all been told to study. Well, not me. I'm OCD, so you can't. <laughs> we, we've been directed many times in our lives, if not at work or at home. And what does that usually do for us? It's a short-lived um, you know, experience, meaning we may comply in the moment, but it's not a sustained change. No, yeah. So part of the the spirit of motivational interviewing and, and really presenting with the correct affect is sparking that internal generator in that individual understanding what their motivations are. It's you know not wanting to miss their kid's soccer game anymore or not wanting to fight with their spouse anymore or not you know showing up late to, to class because they're hungover. Whatever their self-identified motivation is, how do we uh, support that as opposed to bring our agenda? So it's not really about pushing people to where we want or pulling them where we want. It's sparking their internal generator and allowing them to figure out what their where path is. Go, they, where they want to go, where they want to go. Yeah, that's that's real important. I, I know that I have... Uh, someone that I've dealt with in the past. And um, he was very, you know, we'd have a conversation and you could see it wasn't sinking in. And I learned over time that if I waited and gave them time to digest it, they would come back willingly as opposed to me just getting frustrated that, that there was no listening going on, but they were listening. They just needed time to digest it. So, so I, I understand um, the process that you're going through. And I, I think it's, I applaud you again. Um, I think it's very respectful that you're, seeing that this is their journey and they're either going to choose to be on it in one way or another, all you can do is facilitate. And, um, and I, I really want to continue this conversation. I hope, you know, that you'll stay with us for the second half sure. and uh, we can continue the conversation because I think it's an important one. And I know that you have other tools that are out there that uh, are helpful for everyone. I, I think one of the things that I, I thought uh, I liked when I saw some information about you is that, uh, who were inspiring to you? Ah, yeah. So, I mean, for me, it it really goes back to my parents. And I know that sounds very cliche. No, mine but, too. Uh, you know, my parents came to this country uh, as immigrants back in the mid-70s, uh, both very well educated. Uh, my mom was a nurse and my dad was a lawyer and came to this new environment with very little money, if anything, uh, with a son in tow, my older brother, who was one at the time. And from what I have seen throughout my whole life is just a sense of thankfulness, uh, you know, a sense of humility. Um, they've brought a lot of family members over. Um, uh, you know, they've sponsored people. They help everyone that they can. And I think that I took it for granted growing up. Um, however, you know, I think after leaving college and medical school, I quickly started to learn, which was um, they really are the role models. Uh, they they have affected and changed so many people's lives without ever looking for recognition, uh, without ever uh, really talking bad about anyone. And um, now that I'm raising children, uh, I would hope to instill even 10% of that into them. That, that's absolutely beautiful. And it goes to what I say all the time, which we are here to serve each other. Mm -hmm. And that's how you do it. That's how it's done. Yep. And uh, yeah, mine too. My parents are a driving force behind me. It gave me so many tools that you don't even recognize they're giving you until you become an adult and have children of your own. And uh, if I'm a tenth of a parent as my parents were, then I've succeeded. So, and I have two wonderful, amazing grown boys. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm pleased about that. But yeah, that's, that's an inspiring story. And I love that because it's so reflective in meeting you that how compassionate you are and that taking, um, like that underdog kind of feeling and helping people progress and, and find their best them is, is definitely 
on the trail that you're going down, especially with this program? Yeah. So look, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we're all on a journey. Yeah. And you know, if we're going to travel in our own lanes for ourselves, uh, we may get to where we want to go, but you know, we have the opportunity to help many others. Um, and, you know, some people donate to charity, some people, you know, change things that are going on at work or at home or through their church, but we have to find opportunities to help others. And there's a lot of folks out there that unfortunately don't have a true voice in what's going on. Yeah. Um, and when you look at, you know, folks that are dealing with substance use issues, with addiction, with behavioral health, um, uh, mental health, whatever it is, you know, there, there are certain voices that are just muted uh, because we don't give them the forum. And if the work myself and my amazing team and the team that I belong to can make a difference, uh, that's really, it drives us. Yeah. And, and you are making a difference. Definitely. Um, I, I definitely think we need to continue this conversation when we get back. So we will be back in just a few. To healthy lifestyle, I'm Lorianne. If you have any questions, as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Comments or ideas on topics you'd like to hear more about, please email us at healthylifestylewitha at gmail.com. Let me slow it down because I have my New York voice on today. Healthylifestylewitha at gmail.com. And of course, please follow us on social media at Healthy Lifestyle with LA. Appreciate you coming back and staying with us. Uh, we're here talking to Dr. Sandeep Kapoor. He is from Northwell Health, and, Health, and we are talking about uh, intervention, uh, referral 
referral to treatment, taking care of any kind of addictions, and this wonderful program, Espert, that they have at Northwell Health. Thanks for staying with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. So we were talking about Espert, and what does that stand for? We never said earlier. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. Okay. And then there's this other program that you have um, that is kind of like a sister program, if you will, um, at NALSAT. Yeah. So it's um, if you look at Espert as like the foundation of a house, uh, NALSAT to me would be like the framing of that okay. house. Um, NALSAT uh, for us is the naloxone saturation campaign. And I'm people, sorry. So people may think of naloxone or may not think of naloxone, but they've heard of Narcan, sure. which is the antidote for an opioid overdose. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so what we've done is diversified our approach beyond just screening people. Uh, beyond just trying to intervene or refer them out to treatment, but to truly provide some sort of education on how to prevent an opioid overdose. Um, The conversations happen with our patients, our families, uh, as well as um, other staff members on safe disposal. So getting rid of unused and unwanted medications from our medicine cabinets, um, big hotspots for misuse and resale, um, as well as recognizing the signs of uh, an overdose and then how to actually uh, utilize a Narcan unit or a naloxone unit. And, right. and then we hand out uh, rescue kits thanks to Suffolk County DOH, New York State DOH, and many others uh, that have partnered with us to provide kits free of charge. Oh, that's excellent. That That is excellent. And there's a safe deposit box um, event coming up? Yeah, so actually, so the DEA, um, we partner with the DEA a couple of times a year to hold a take back event. Um, and I can't stress how important this is because this is the simplest step that all of us can take. Um, we probably all have a stockpile of medication sitting in our house, uh, keeping it for a rainy day or because we paid the copay, we didn't want to get rid of it. <laughs> um, actually, the reality is we don't know how to get rid of these medications. You know, we're not told, we're told not to uh, Years ago, we were supposed to flush it down yeah. the toilet. Then they said, don't do that. That's well, going into our aquifer. Well, that's the thing. One of the biggest pollutants in our water is medication. Mm-hmm. So uh, we partner with the DEA on um, October 27th between the hours of 10 and two p- 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Right. We have 10 of our facilities that actually will have a safe, dispo- a safe disposal available, uh, partnering with the local police stations so that we have support as well. Um, but more importantly, we've also started to uh, install uh, MedSafe units, and these are blue mailbox-looking um, contraptions that we put into our front lobbies, so that our patients and their families, as well as our staff, have a safe place to drop off any unused, unwanted, or uh, expired medications. Okay, I, I love that. That's great. So, and that's October twenty-seventh, right? Yep. And if they want to find the locations. Uh, yeah, they could go to Northwell's website um, okay. and they'll find uh, geographically dispersed 10 of our facilities that are taking part between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on the 27th. Love that. Love that. OK. And that's all part of the uh, the NALSAT? So, no, I think it's a bridge off of it. Um, you know, if we're going to educate patients and family members to be first responders to this crisis, uh, safe disposal is a very important part of the conversation. Um, and in order to truly uh, fulfill that, we need to provide safe disposal areas for them. You know, I will add, you know, the majority of our local police stations also offer some sort of disposal. Some of the pharmacies in the area, uh, maybe some libraries as well may have these med safes or something similar. I know in the town of Brookhaven, they have a a lot of these collections throughout the year. So if you check either your local township um, or the police department or Northwell, you're going to be able to find a place to properly uh, dispose of prescriptions and we, we really don't recommend you holding on to them um, for just in case purposes mm-hmm. um, because just in case becomes uh, just available mm-hmm. and uh, we don't want stuff like this to be available for, for our children or for anybody who is having some kind of an issue. 
So, um, but with that said, that was my little uh, PSA right there. Um, so now we were talking earlier about there's lots of changes coming down the pike. So this, how long has this program been around, Esbert? Uh, so we've had the luxury of doing this for the last five years. Okay. Um, so it's still it's infancy stage, right? It is by far in its infancy. Yeah. Uh, main, one of the main reasons why it's it's in its infancy is because this itself is a tool to shift the culture of clinical care. Yeah. Um, we're dealing with an environment where we haven't truly been educated on substance use appropriately to recognize it and appreciate it as a healthcare issue. Correct. Um, which, you know... Espert standalone is not going to actually make a big difference. Um, it's it's a start of making a very everything big difference. makes a difference. You know, you have to take a step that's to great. start to walk. So, Absolutely. so that's that's a that's a great program. So, um, and and it's stepping in the right direction. But that has led to changes in the medical school room, right? You you are an assistant professor, right? At uh, at Hofstra. That's correct? correct. Yeah. So the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine. Um, I'm an assistant professor of medicine and emergency medicine. And there. what do you teach? Uh, um, so I first started as teach uh, part how to of the evade questions. Is that what you try to do? <laughs> I started on the communications faculty, yeah. uh, the medical communications faculty. Sure. And then thanks to great partnership and leadership there, we were really able to diversify what the school does um, to change this trend of non-education around substance use to um, really building in a dedicated curriculum around addressing substance and use. It, and went something like from two hours worth of curriculum to what now? So it, yeah, four years ago, it was the traditional two hour footprint that many medical schools around this country have. And um, just as of this past month, we're actually at a four year longitudinal 27 dedicated hours to teach the next generation of clinicians to handle this appropriately. Wow. And how do you, how do you handle um, current practitioners who, who, you know, went through the system, the old style. Sure. And that's, that's the majority of us. Um, uh, you know, it's not just the older folks, it's even the folks that are out there right now that yeah. are just starting their careers. Um, we've been very privileged with the partnership that we have between the school of medicine and the, and Northwell health, where we're now taking successful modules that we've evaluated with our medical students and bringing them in for faculty development, clinical team education, and residency trainings where, uh, my team and I have a footprint in, uh, five different residency programs, um, and it's growing day by day. Uh, this is our opportunity truly to fill in the gap of education so that we can lift that level of comfort so that we can actually uh, you know, speak to our patients in a very different manner. When you, when you say footprint, um, what do you mean? So I'm sorry. So dedicated time, dedicated curriculum time. So it's built in. It's built into the program. It's not a uh, once-off kind of lecture or uh, session. It truly is a dynamic session where we bring in something called standardized patients for our residents to practice. Oh, I know that. Skills. I know that. Cause I used to be one of the actors in the, in the program out in Stony Brook. Oh, wow. And, uh, would have to carry on what they would give you a sheet and you'd have to study the sheet and understand all the ailments, side effects and things like that. So you can answer the questions on behalf of whatever patient you're playing and they would come in and, uh, the students would come in and I was fortunate enough to be in the program long enough that I we actually saw a class go through four years. The difference between day one when I thought they were going to just like fall out of their skin because they were shaking, literally shaking in their boots when they were coming in to when they were leaving and they were basically, you know, high fiving us as they were leaving the door. It was really nice The the transition was beautiful because it went from being very, very technical over technical where it was confusing to me as a patient, even acting as a patient. Um, to being a very um, 
I would say regular layman language and um, compassionate mm-hmm. and, and more concerned less with, you know, the clinical stuff that they have to take in and just had a better, better transition of obtaining that information because I'm a perfect one to be the worst to ask questions to there. I go to the doctor, the doctor says, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But, okay. Well, and you're here. Why? And so, and then they go through the, the questions of asking, cause you don't think of it. You push it aside cause you just deal with it. And, um, you know, you, I'm sure you deal with that all the time. It's a great program. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the great work we've done at Hofstra and now we're bringing into the organization of Northwell, um, it's allowing us to really bring an all encompassing approach, um, knowing that it's a multi-pronged, multifaceted issue. Um, we have to start with the core concepts of communication and yeah. empathy and humanizing this yeah. and uh, having a standardized patient built into the experiential component of education, um, that changes things from reading it from a book of how to doing it as opposed to actually practicing it. Oh, totally And then totally hearing different. feedback from someone about, yes, you did make me feel safe. Yes, you did make me feel that you you heard what I was saying as opposed to, yeah, you took my blood pressure. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. You are listening to Healthy Lifestyle on Long Island News Radio 103.9. I'm Ann Kazdia, and we are speaking to Dr. Sandeep Kapoor and uh, totally brilliant at this project. I love, love, love that you do this, that this program is out there um, dealing with substance abuse and uh, humanizing the whole process because it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to uh, ask for that help to begin with. And to know that you're going to have compassionate people working with you is, uh, is really a, a, a huge leap in the right direction from where, uh, you know, the as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply process I went through, which was not so, was not so nice. And it was very judgmental and it was very, um, it was scary to not only my family, but through the person who was going through it. So it was, it was, uh, compassion was not a word that came to mind when I was going through the process. So it's nice to know that that's out there, but that's not something you can teach someone. You can read it in a book, you can see it, but they, by going through this process, you can learn it, right? I'm a firm believer. I, I mean, I think empathy is the, the all-encompassing word here. Um, you know, uh, removing that judgment, really understanding what that person is feeling and demonstrating that. Um, people may think that empathy is a, uh, a trait, uh, but it actually is a skill set. And there's micro skills of empathy that can be taught, uh, but they have to be practiced in order to ever feel like you've mastered them. Um, we need to keep building opportunities for our communities as well as our own clinical team members to practice empathy first yeah. learn about it and then actually put it into practice because i think we've all been on the 
the uh, receiving end of someone that's been empathetic with us. And it, it makes us feel very different yes. than being on the receiving end of someone that's been very judgmental of us. Yes. And or pretending to be empathetic instead of genuinely empathetic. Sure. And there's a, you can feel the difference. Yep. You may not be able to cognitively recognize it, but you feel the difference between somebody really caring versus someone who's just going through it because they're told they have to go through it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I find that the, the doctors I've met at Northwell Health are just, they just have that genuine desire to help other people. And it's, um, it's inspiring. And it just, it makes me feel hopeful that we're going in a direction with the society and hopefully society follows through because um, we have so many opportunities to be judgmental utilizing social media platforms, big bullying platform, if it's used improperly. And if it's used correctly, it's a brilliant tool that allows us to stay connected and feel like we have other people in our, in our, uh, what's the term, you know, in our corner. And, uh, and I think that's an important element about social media, knowing that people are out there, you're not alone. And when you're going through something like this, you're not alone and that you guys really care about it and you stay in the game. I mean, you know, there's, there's a long road ahead. We're all on a journey organizationally as an industry, as a community, we're all on this journey together, but yeah, absolutely. It's very hard to do this alone. Um, and that's why I think, you know, you said the word hope a couple of times again, and I think that's really the core of all this. You know, if we can be the conduit for hope, uh, then we could actually start facilitating a change, driving us away from where these epidemics are taking us um, and support each other through it. Um, You know, we have, as a society, you mentioned this as well, as a society, you know, we're not the most compassionate when it comes to this in particular, uh, but we can start modeling something different so that, yes, our communities pick up on it, uh, our own kids pick up on it, or, you know, anybody through osmosis um, will pick up on the right. fact that, you know, compassion can go a very long way. Now, will it solve the issue? Absolutely not. But if you build on that compassion, then we're better inept, we're better capable of actually coming up with some sort of solution. Well, someone going through the, through the addiction, um, if you're not compassionate, they have the judgmental hurdle to get over. And some people never make it over that of course, because it's so difficult mm-hmm. and you need a, a, a very strong constitution to be able to push through that particular hurdle. So just imagine a world where you don't have that hurdle where it's okay. We understand that this is what's going on. Um, let's go to the next level. They're not battling with that. Oh my goodness part. They're already in the, all right, what options do I have? How do I educate myself? How do I get myself out of here? It, it, I don't believe, and I may be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe people purposefully get involved in any kind of an addiction. Um, all of a sudden you're in it. And, uh, and, and then how you take it and the direction you go, I think depends on that village that it's supposed to take to, to uh, help people. Yeah. I'll comment on two things that you just said. One, um, you know, we are very good at throwing barriers into the equation, right? right? So if someone is trying to get from point A to point B, we, as the healthcare professionals that we are, the organization that we are, as well as the trusted care providers we are, we shouldn't be a hurdle, right? We should do everything we can to not be a hurdle in that process and actually serve as facilitators. And again, one of the simplest things is, is changing our language around this, you know, not using the word addict, not using the word junkie, not talking about someone's urine being dirty or clean, but actually using alternative words as someone is dealing with an addiction. You know, talking about that person as opposed to the illness. Right. I mean, that's step one. The second thing I'll comment on, um, you know, look at any other uh, disease process out there. If it's hypertension or diabetes, let's take diabetes, for example. 
you don't wake up at the age of 40 diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Right. We do everything we can at every touch point to ensure that doesn't happen. Obviously, in partnership with the patient, but we take people's uh, vital signs, their right. blood pressure and pulse. We'll right. take a finger stick for their blood sugar. And if something, yeah, I don't like that, by the way. <laughs> and if something's outside of normal limits, we conversate about it. Right. We talk about diet, nutrition, potentially medications. If that's not working, then we start a medication or we'll refer them out to a nutritionist, a dietitian, or an endocrinologist. So we have these things programmed into our healthcare minds. Uh, we need to look at substance use the same way. You don't wake up at the age of 40 addicted to cocaine or opioids or alcohol. There is a journey here. Yes. And we could take advantage as healthcare professionals to talk about it every single touch point. If something's outside of normal limits, um, then we have a conversation. And right. during that conversation, we offer um, potential changes, you know, medications, whatever it may be. And if need be, refer out to specialty care. But that's what we need to start doing to, to prevent the progression of this uh, and the sheer numbers of folks dealing with addiction as opposed to something looking at it as if it's preventable. Right, right, right. Yeah. Now, and, and again, it has to be a decision made by the person going through it too, yes. to want to get the help. Um, but we also have to look at what is happening in our society that's creating people to have this many addictions. Um, it's, it's out of control. So, and I think, you know, and, and I'm going to do a judgment statement at this point. I think that, um, the social media platforms are really contributing to it because it's creating an anxiety that a lot of people can't really contend with that may or may not be necessary. But with that said, that's a really different day, different topic to go, go into. But um, I definitely think there's a con uh, contributing factor of that. Again, anything can be used for good, but it can also be used for bad. Sure. And um, I've watched some, and, and oddly enough, I think adults have a harder time with it than, than our youth does, because I think they're, they're shaking it a little easier. Um, and I've watched some adults that get all upset about not having enough likes. And I just had Ruth Ellard on, um, and she, we were talking, she's a counselor and we were talking about that, just that topic. That's why it's really uh, top of mind for me about the fact that people are reacting uh, very negatively to some of that. But again, it's up to us to provide that, that care. And that's what you're doing. You're providing these, these resources that haven't been there in the past. And uh, to me, that's heroic. These are the things we should be doing for each other. And by approaching it, by change of language, changing that, which is a huge endeavor that you're taking on because that's a cultural change that you're taking on um, one person at a time. Uh, talk about your team. You, you speak so magnanimously about them. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I appreciate all the kind words you're saying, but I'm just one representative of so many people that have really stepped up to uh, change the game. Um, you know, the culture is the biggest thing we need to change. Yeah. And um, the, to do it alone is impossible. Right. Um, so I have the good fortune of being on an uh, interprofessional, interdisciplinary team of folks uh, from frontline to leadership and everywhere in between to really you know, drive the conversations forward. Um, I have uh, folks that are on the clinical team, as well as some great leadership that support the work that we're trying to do, but it's geographically dispersed. So we have team members from Peconic Bay Medical Center all the way to Northern Westchester Hospital to Staten Island Hospital and everywhere in between, because this change cannot just be in one place. Uh, we're a very large organization. So we're trying to drive this change every single day, every chance we get. It, it, that, it's, it's amazing. It really is. I, I'm Again, I, I feel like I repeat myself because I'm just taken back. I had no idea that this even existed. 
um, Allie who uh, comes to me and brings me all these wonderful medical doctors who's sitting here staring at me right now. She's going to turn red again. Um, she she just has this w- great way of bringing all these doctors and yourself included who have this desire to really make a positive change. And I really respect that. I really respect you for everything that you're doing. And um, I hope that you'll come back to talk more about this, talk about your other programs um, and utilize this as an opportunity to speak to everyone and provide those tools out there that are so necessary uh, for everyone to have. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It was an honor. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today on Healthy Lifestyle. My heart is always lifted by sharing this time with you. Um, Of course, I want to thank our producer, Brian. Follow us on social media at Healthy Lifestyle with LA. And remember, do a little something for yourself every day. It starts there. Create the habit. Create a new balance. Thank you for joining us on Healthy Lifestyle. I'm Lorianne Kazdia. Until next time, show up for you and show up big. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.